0: Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. <laughs> uh, you crack me up every time, Alex. I, uh, <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, it's... Uh, Good to be with uh, with you this morning, and, and I, I appreciate uh, everything that's been said and done so far. And, and the words of those songs uh, are just, uh, yeah, yeah. We uh, we are privileged to to know and serve a great God. I uh, I want to talk to you today about a mountaintop experience. Uh, have you had one of those? Maybe you've had many of those. Uh, hopefully, you have. Um, did you know that mountains are the biggest things we have on Earth? There's, uh, yeah, uh, reminds me of my first trip to the Rocky Mountains and the um, just the uh, just the wonder, the awe, the awe the, and the um, the majesty of of mountains. Uh, we are finishing up today a four-week. Series uh, we called Meekness and Majesty, which, of course, is in reference to Jesus, the meekness and the majesty of, of Jesus. And part of why we chose this theme is because it really does uh, represent how Jesus comes to us on the pages of Scripture. Uh, he's presented to us this way in the New Testament. Uh, fully human, yet fully divine at the same time. The Son of God in uh, the flesh. Uh, majestic, Lord, high and lifted up humble Savior washing our feet. This identity of Jesus is the framework for the entire life and mission of Jesus on earth and, uh, and it's also the whole uh, of our Christian uh, faith. So today's passage takes um, the display of majesty to the top. Uh in Luke's telling of this account, uh we have the words uh from Luke in Luke chapter 9, he says, They saw his glory, they being the disciples, him being Jesus. They saw his his glory. So we're gonna start and get into scripture today, Matthew chapter 17 and verses 1 through 8 and uh, but i just wonder if you might you might pray with me this morning as we uh, as we get into his word lord i thank you for all of those who are uh, looking to your word this morning and and just taking the time to think and reflect and and, and to pray about what you have for us um, in your word today and in these tumultuous days in which we live. I thank you, Lord, for each one. And Lord, I just pray that as we as we turn to you in your word, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would be our teacher and that you would um, just uh, be pleased, Lord, for your glory and for our good to, to um, open up our understanding so that we might Uh, Be able to rejoice together today in your goodness and your greatness. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Luke tells us in his telling of the story as well that when the disciples went up the mountain that day, they went up, Jesus went up the mountain to pray. Uh, Let's read Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So that's the first uh, eight verses of Matthew chapter 17. As I mentioned, Luke tells us that Jesus went up the mountain that day to pray, which was his custom. Jesus uh, often would uh, try to get away uh, to pray. Um, prayer was a consistent practice in, in Jesus' life. And um, uh, what, what about you? Do, you? do you need time to get alone, to think, and to pray? I know I sure do. Uh, and apparently Jesus did too. Uh, when God says in, in Genesis chapter uh, 2 that it's not good for man to be alone, he didn't mean that we should never spend time alone. Uh, we all need time alone. Jesus consistently sought time alone and, and, and we we're giving the impression in scripture that it was these alone times that Jesus had with his heavenly father that really fueled him for the, the crowd times and for the times that he would spend with his disciples. Um. And the fact that Jesus needed to get alone to pray uh, is, among, uh, among other things, a strong indication that you and I need, need that uh, far more than we probably realize. And, and Luke, says, uh, Luke says it was while he was praying, while he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew says here that his face shone like the sun, and uh, Mark says that his uh, clothing became white like light, as no one on earth could bleach them. So this is what we call the transfiguration of Jesus, the the display of his of his heavenly glory, and uh, so Luke also tells us that while this is happening, the disciples are asleep. Matthew. Uh, and Mark does, they don't mention that, but Luke tells us that they were asleep. So, so uh, you know, that was a pattern as well. You know, Jesus would pray, the disciples would sleep. We're going to see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is coming up uh, before too long in our studies. So Jesus is praying and the disciples are sleeping. And uh, they are suddenly awakened to the transfigured Jesus before them, but also two other figures, Moses and Elijah. So who are these guys and what are they doing there? Why this appearance? Um, it could be because Moses and Elijah are known for their mountaintop experiences as well. You will recall uh, back in Exodus chapter 24 that Moses went up to the mountain where he would receive the law. And uh, Elijah, he met with God there. And Elijah traveled up the same mountain where God spoke to him in a still small voice. You may recall that from First. Uh, Kings chapter 19, um, no question that the experience of Elijah is set out in scripture as a, a parallel to the uh, experience of Moses going up uh, Mount, Mount Sinai. In Elijah's day, it was referred to as Mount Horeb. Um, now, most, most commentators will point out, and I believe rightly so, that these two men represent the law and the prophets. I think we're all pretty uh, pretty sh- clear that Moses represented the law. He was the prophet that God used to bring the law to the people. And I think we could probably agree that uh, Elijah makes a great representative uh, for the prophets in general. Um, you may also be aware, you may have noticed that when you're reading through the New Testament, one of the more common descriptors used... Um, in the New Testament to refer to the Old Testament is this phrase, the law and the prophets. So uh, I think we could say that in this passage today, that this is one of the most striking examples that we have of how the New Testament and the Old Testament are tied together. How the life and ministry and mission of Jesus is not somehow disconnected from what has happened and what God has done prior to Jesus' time on earth. Nor to what would follow behind. Uh, Remember the Sermon on the Mount, at one point Jesus says do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets I have not come uh, to abolish them but to fulfill them and then he said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And that's in Matthew chapter 5. So what we have here is is a spectacular um, coming together convergence of uh, Old Testament revelation and the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ uh, and his life ministry on earth. And as we'll see also Uh, Really pointing to his death and resurrection. So Jesus is praying. The disciples are sleeping. And they wake up when they see Jesus transfigured before them. And uh, Moses and and Elijah. And Peter begins immediately to start, he starts talking. Now if you've been paying attention, uh, by now we have a pretty good sense of Peter's personality. Peter was impetuous. Uh, we saw this last week when we were uh, looking at that uh, passage where Peter walked on water and uh, Josh led us through uh, with uh, good insight into uh, what, what this was, that was happening in Peter's life. And uh, because Peter was one of those think first uh, or think, uh, act first, think, yeah, later act first, think later kind of guys. Or uh, act first, talk first, think later kind of guys. Uh, he's always putting his foot in his mouth. And uh, in fact, it, it tells us in the text here that um, Peter was still talking when this cloud envelops them all. And God interrupts Peter's talking um, Peter's kind of running on at the mouth, which is something that some of us have difficulty uh, controlling. And he's, um, he's, he's all excited. He says, Jesus, this is really great. This is really great that we're here. Uh, I, I have a good idea. I'll build three tents here. I'll, I'll build one for uh, you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. This is really good. And uh, Luke tells us that Peter said this not knowing what he was saying. I don't know how many of you have a tendency to talk when you really don't know what you're saying, but uh, I've been known to do that on numerous occasions, and uh, Peter had that problem as well. Poor Peter. He was sleeping when he should have been praying and paying attention. Now he suddenly wakes up, all excited, and he has a great plan for Jesus. <laughs> um, I really identify with this guy, Peter. Uh, have you ever had a conversation going with uh, someone, and uh, someone else comes into the conversation late, and just sort of takes over the conversation? Uh, because they, uh, well, I don't know, why do, why do we do that? I don't know. But that was Peter. That was the kind of... Uh, Personality that Peter had. Now, some people have suggested that uh, Peter's idea was that it'd be nice to settle down right here on top of this mountain. We just live right here, just just Jesus and Moses and Elijah and and me and uh, James and John, and uh, and th- and then people say the application point out of that is, is that we can't live on the mountaintops, that life is made up of mountaintop experiences and valley experiences, and it would be great, it would be really nice, but we can't, uh, we can't do that. Um, That may have been on Peter's mind, I I don't know, who knows, the the text says he, he said these things not knowing uh, what he was, uh, was saying, and it also says there that they were terrified, and we all know that when we get afraid, we, sometimes we have a hard time thinking clearly. But um, I suspect something else was going through Peter's mind, to be honest with you. But um, the, 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 um, he's, he's still talking. And God uh, has to uh, interrupt him, as it were. Uh, which is probably a good thing when God interrupts us. Um, especially when we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> and he has his ways of doing that, but he uses a cloud and the cloud is, is significant. You'll recall in the Old Testament Scriptures how God's presence is associated with the cloud. We have the the uh, the exodus, of course, where God uh, revealed himself and led the people through the wilderness with the cloud and, and how the cloud filled the tabernacle, which was the first uh, temple, if you will, and then later the temple that Solomon built. And um, And you can read on in the story of Jesus how he, uh, um, uh, when he was crucified and risen in Acts chapter 1, it says that when he ascended, the cloud took him out of their sight. And so there's, and there's all kinds of other references with regard to this idea of uh, this cloud representing the presence of God and associated with the glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus talks about it again himself in Matthew 26. There's uh, Matthew references in Matthew 24. Daniel is, is a really key. Uh, Daniel 7.13 is a key reference. And then if you want, read Revelation chapter 1 when Jesus appears to John on the island of Patmos um, and he's shining like the sun there in his glorified uh, presence. And um, there's all kinds of, of of references to this this. Uh, glory cloud Um, but there's also the voice right and I think the voice here is uh, is probably uh, what uh, needs to be our focus because the voice that the disciples heard said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased now that's exactly what the voice from heaven said when Jesus was baptized. You may, may recall that from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry when the voice from heaven spoke those, uh, those same words. But this time there is an added phrase. Those three words in verse 5, listen to him. Now Moses got instructions when he was up on the mountain in his day, uh, to build the tabernacle, which is just a a fancy word for tent. And maybe what Peter has in mind here uh, is uh, the building of a tent in honor of each of these three uh, persons, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And I tend to think that that's the import here in the passage because when God breaks through and interrupts Peter I think a point that he makes if you you look is Moses was a great person in scripture, Elijah was a great person in scripture but Jesus is in a category all by himself, all alone Um, and then I think that that's Kind of the idea here in verse 8, when it says, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. It kind of parallels that statement that Jesus made over and over again on the Sermon on the Mount when he would say, You've heard it said, but I say it unto you. And here God says, This is my This is my son. This is my uh, beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Moses was a great prophet, but if you will remember, uh, Moses wasn't um, exactly without his faults and problems. Elijah was the fiery prophet of Israel. But yeah, he had his problems too. But Jesus is in a category all alone, you know Moses and Elijah represent not only the law and the prophets but they represent all that was esteemed by the Jewish people, and the Jewish people tended to, to glorify their their, uh, their, their um, ancestors and and uh, idolize them uh, Kind of the opposite of what we do now. Uh, But if I I could read a passage from John chapter 8, we're not going to put this on the screen for you today, but John chapter 8, Jesus is having this discussion with the Jews and uh, they're really uh, taking exception to some of his claims and they say this, they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Uh, because Jesus is talking there about living forever and his his eternal existence and his glory. And Jesus answered them, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And I think the main one of the main messages coming to us out of this passage of scripture, out of this mountaintop experience that disciples had with Jesus, is that Jesus is in a class all of his own. He is the majestic Lord of glory. He is the humbled Savior, the sacrifice for our sin. And those Two things, son of man, son of God, uh, holy, fully God, fully human, manifested in the flesh. Those two things um, found form the foundation for the identity of Jesus. I want to just read uh, with you the last uh, four verses of the, the passage that we are want to look at this morning as our primary text, uh, verses 9 through 13, because I think there's some things there we want to... Uh, we want to just take a, a look at. Matthew 17, 9 to 13. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. It's interesting that it's, he, Jesus refers to what their experience was as a vision there. And these are the apostles uh, who become the apostles of Jesus, the counterparts for the Old Testament prophets. Um, Verse 10, and the disciples asked him, when, uh, th- then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Uh, this is a very fascinating passage when it comes to the whole concept of discerning uh, past, present, and future events and how uh, those things unfold in, our, in space and time in human history. Notice, uh, notice if you look at the last part of verse 11 and the first part of verse 12, Jesus says, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. And then in verse 12, But I tell you that Elijah has already come. So this is a classic example of an extremely important uh, uh, um, principle, maybe, of how scripture presents to us historic prophetic um, occurrences. So so note note a few things here. First of all, notice that in Scripture, people uh, and events are in God's hands. Uh, We and all the happenings in our world are in God's hands. He knows them. He foreknows them. He controls them. And they are all moving toward a consummation. That's the first thing we need to understand when it comes to understanding um, prophetic Foretelling of events in Scripture. The second thing is is that people and events uh, happen in cycles or or waves, so that they so we have multiple fulfillments happening over time, so that something can be uh, fulfilled without being entirely fulfilled. And I know that this this can be confusing. This is where where we get confused, right? Um, And that's why the examples are so helpful. And so we have an example of this this concept here in this passage with regard to Elijah and John the Baptist. We refer to these things as types. So that uh, we say that Elijah is is a type or Elijah was or is, you can say either, a type of John the Baptist. You know, they both had the whole uh, hairy coat thing happening, and they were in the wilderness, and they're they with their eyes all uh, <laughs> all wild. And you know, they, they were they was they were alike. They served a similar function and role. They were two separate individuals, and yet their identities were somehow linked. And. Not only can we say that, uh, John, uh, that Elijah is a type of John the Baptist, we can say John the Baptist is a type of Elijah because Jesus said both he has come and he is coming. Uh, we can say the same thing about uh, Joseph or David or Moses or Joshua serving as types of Jesus. So in Scripture, the view of time or history is that it is uh it has a a cyclical aspect to it while also being linear. I I I know that may be a little bit that may sound a little philosophical or a little bit uh ethereal. I I don't know how that sounds to you when I say that. But but it is important. In scripture, history or time, the passage of time is conceived or, uh, of as being both cyclical and linear. So uh, in one sense, you have history repeating itself over and over and over again. But it's also, at the same time, it's going somewhere. There's a consummation coming of all things. Uh, you, you may have heard uh, this. The more things change, the more they become the same. I don't know about what goes through your mind when you look at the events happening in the world around us, even in these days. It can be really confusing. And it can be overwhelming. And trying to to sort out what's all happening and why it's happening and where it's going is more than you and I can really manage. But we need to start with Scripture and recognize these important things from Scripture, that history is cyclical, but also linear. Um, That prophecy is being fulfilled because God knows and plans the future as history continues to unfold. But it is going somewhere. Um, The cross and the resurrection of Jesus form the hinge of history. And as you think about that, as we think about that this morning, we could say that, or observe that um, Jesus himself is, is a, a type in fulfillment of, of prophecy because Jesus has a historical successor as well. Now, it might sound irreverent for me to say that. It might even sound like I'm uh, speaking heresy, but just, just think about this. The events we're reading about when we read about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus happened uh, 2,000 years ago. And yet history continues to unfold. And so we would say that the successor of Jesus is his church, his body. You know, the the, the old saying that um, we are his hands and his feet, it's, it might sound a little corny, but it's, it is the, exactly the idea that the church as the Uh, as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of promise, promised by Jesus, that that would come into the world and would uh, fill his people and empower his people and deploy his people to do what? To do his will and his works. We, in a sense, are the successors uh, of Jesus' physical uh, appearance on earth. And uh, so all of these things are important for us to to kind of grapple with in, in, in our minds. You know, the disciples' question here is is why do why do the people say Elijah must come first? See, their question is is typical. That's what we, we want, right? We, we want to be able to look at history and, and at prophecy and we want to be able to draw it all out and say, okay, so there's this and then this and then this and then this. But scripture's not written that way. Prophecy doesn't come to us that way. Rather, the, what we do see is we see the cyclical, cyclical pattern of, uh, of history But at the same time, there is this movement towards a consummation. It's going somewhere. And God is in charge. And Jesus is at the center. And we can trust him. And there is a final consummation coming. Eschatology. Study of future events. Use the term prophecy, but really prophecy is way more than just uh, about the future. Uh, Because the scriptural worldview, in the scriptural worldview, uh, future events are tied into past and present events. So, for example, you cannot look at the events of our world today and have a sweet clue what's going on without going back And looking at what the scripture says about the past. To try to understand the present is even impossible. Let alone the future without understanding what God has said in his word. About these patterns and about this progression. So when you look at current events and you wonder about them. What does it all mean? Um, whatever you do, don't miss these two important aspects that uh, are given uh, throughout the Bible uh, as, as the Bible records uh, history and gives commentary on the history of the Bible. We see uh, exactly, when we look at the world today, what do we see? Exactly what we sh- should expect to see. What do we see? We see patterns of sin and destruction Mixed with waves of goodness and grace. And we see the hand of God in all of it. As he takes it. All to where it's all going. Now that's a, that's a lot to think about. And it's, uh, if I could use the word, it's Prophetic. To use the word, the way it should be word, the way it should be used, is is prophetic. So let me ask you a question: Where are you going? When you look at the world today and you think, "Oh man, I don't know where this world is heading. I, I don't know where this is all going to end up." Sometimes it feels like we're going to hell in a handbasket. Where are you going? Where, what's the trajectory of your life? Where, where does it end for you personally? Because that might be the greatest question about future events that, that there is. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What does Jesus say? Well, he says a whole lot. But the main thing that Jesus says if you read through his word is that your future and mine depend entirely upon our relationship with him. What he promises to those who will listen to him and respond to his gospel message is what the scripture calls eternal life. That's where this is all headed. That's the consummation of all things. That's when we shall see him in all his glory. Luke adds this comment. It's another interesting detail that Luke gives us that's not in the Matthew passage or the Mark passage Uh, Luke tells us what it was that Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about. It says in Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure, interesting choice of words, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Obviously talking about Jesus and his departure, which he was about to accomplish uh, at Jerusalem. Um, The significance of what they were talking about is something that relates to the context of this passage. And so far, we haven't really looked about at the context, but I want to indulge, uh, if, uh, if I could, um, to, to take a, a little bit of time and think uh, through the, some of the context here because um, the context and the timing of this, the timing of this is, is important. Jesus is approaching the end of his time on earth and he is beginning to prepare his disciples for the immense suffering and the violent death that lies ahead. That's why Luke says they were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So to fully appreciate this, I want for us to go back to the previous chapter, which is Matthew 16, And in Matthew 16, we find out that this is all happening in the area of Caesarea Philippi. That might not mean a lot to you, but just, just bear with me for a minute, because it's important. Caesarea Philippi was located at the southwestern base of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is believed to be the site of the Transfiguration. What you're looking at right there now is a picture taken in uh, 2008 when we had the opportunity to uh, visit uh, Israel and uh, that uh, is a spring that flows out of the base of Mount Hermon at Caesarea Philippi and uh, Caesarea Philippi in Jesus' day was the site of uh, the pagan temple of the god Pan. Pan. You might recall from your school days of um, uh, when you studied uh, Greek mythology that the, uh, the god uh, Pan uh, was a prominent uh, a god in the Greek pantheon. Here's an artist's impression of the temple uh, at Caesarea Philippi that was dedicated to the god, uh, the, the Greek, Greco-Roman god Pan. And it was also... Located, Caesarea Philippi, was located at the northern extremity of Jesus' travels when he was here on earth. The farthest north that Jesus ever went uh, is this text we're in right now, Caesarea Philippi. Now, I'll show you on a map here. Let's bring up a map. It's hard to get a map with uh, Mount Sinai and Caesarea Philippi in it. So I apologize that it's a little hard to see. But if, if you notice the Sinai Peninsula um, between the Suez Canal and what's that other body there called the Gulf, Persian Gulf, um, this, the Sinai Peninsula where Mount Sinai is, way down the bottom center of your screen pretty much, And then you look far way up to the right-hand corner. You see the Dead Sea. uh, And then you see the little wee marker for Galilee at the very top right-hand corner. And Caesarea Philippi is not marked on there, but it would be to the north of the Sea of Galilee. It was the farthest distance that Jesus traveled away from Jerusalem in his time here on earth. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is now turning, if you will, towards Jerusalem. In the same context uh, of this passage, it says in uh, Luke, um, if I can find it here. Yeah, Luke chapter 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's at Caesarea Philippi. So here he is with his disciples. They've traveled up to Caesarea Philippi, which was a, a, a very pagan place. And as Jesus uh, ascends to the mountain there and shows the disciples his glory, and then he turns his face towards Jerusalem, and he begins to have this conversation with them about what's going to happen at Jerusalem. So I want to pick it up and we'll try to speed up the process here a little bit I want to pick it up in Matthew 16 verse 13 and just read through some of Matthew again just hang in there because this context is really really important Matthew 16 verses 13 to 17 now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi remember this is the context for the Matthew 17 passage he said to his disciples who do people say that the son of man is And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus goes on there then to talk about his church. He said, I will build my church. Remember that passage? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Then in verses 20 to 23, we have this. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, This shall never happen to you. But he turned to and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And what we see here is, is that Jesus, as Jesus begins to reveal the, the future uh, uh, of his sufferings and his death and his resurrection to the, to the disciples, it's too much for them. He spent the last uh, almost three years with them, every, you know, day after day teaching and caring, and, and they had got, got, come so close to him. It was just too hard for them. It was just too far outside of their, their idea of, of what the promises uh, in, needed to be, and they just couldn't accept it. And then Jesus breaks into this last discourse, which is the very last words that we have from him before we um, uh, see him take the disciples, uh, James, John, and Peter, up the mountain to pray that day. It says in chapter 16, verse 24 and following, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone... Would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That last statement is the statement that immediately precedes the context, uh, immediately, immediately precedes the passage that, we're, that we've been in today. Jesus isn't just preparing them for what's going to happen to him. He's also preparing them for what's going to happen to them. This whole mountaintop experience is so impactful on Peter that decades later, as Peter himself approaches the end of his own life on earth, decades after Christ has promised to return, he writes about it. 2 Peter chapter 1 Verse 12 and following. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and though you are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up. By way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure. Interesting choice of word. After my departure, you may be, be, be able at that time, at any time, to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him on that holy mountain. I spent some time this week thinking about the question. Out of all the extraordinary displays of greatness and glory that the disciples, the, the apostle of Jesus, got to witness what was it about this one that caused it to stand out so in Peter's mind that he would write about it here as the end of his own life drew near. And then I started to think about all of the things that Peter endured from that day on that mountain until this day when he wrote those, those words Many years later. And then I thought about you. And me. And all the events of our lives. And all the stuff. That goes on in the world around us. All the people. All the circumstances. Many of them good and glorious. Some of them heinous and harsh. What can keep our hearts from sinking? What can keep your heart from sinking. What is your hope? What hope do we have? What is our hope? Glory. Glory with Jesus. John the Apostle said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace truth I want to do two more things this morning with you if you've hung in there with me one is I want to read from Romans chapter 8 and then I want to pray with you I've read this passage of scripture many 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 times and I've, I've often shared it with, with you but I want to go there again this, this morning just as we finish up I want you to, to read it again for the first time with me Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 18 to 23, and we'll jump down to verse 28 and read to 39. Romans eight eighteen, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then jumping down to verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God can be for us, who can be against us? He did not, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, thank you so much for what you reveal in your word to us. How your word shows us Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you that he was willing to leave the glories of heaven. To come and to humble himself and to take upon himself the form of a servant. Even to the washing of our feet. And became obedient unto death the sufferings of the cross, even death on the cross. Thank you for his glorious resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that these events form the hinge of all history, past, present, and future, and even our eternal destinies. Lord, I pray right now for those who have not, as of yet, made their destiny sure by trusting in your promise of eternal life. You suffered and died so that we could be forgiven of our sins and know with absolute certainty that come what may, glory waits us because of you, Lord Jesus. That your suffering and your death was sufficient to pay the price for our sin and that your resurrection And the glory that you now have once again with the Father is the assurance that someday we will share in that with you for all eternity. And I pray, Lord, that those who have yet to make that decision today, that that today would be the day. Today that would be the day that they would recognize their part in all of time and history. And that they would claim your promise even now that you would take them and make them your own and bless them and use them to glorify your name here on this earth. And Lord, for those of us who profess your name, Lord, I thank you that we can be your body here, that we can serve you here, that we can bring glory to your name here that we can witness, that we can testify that you are good and that your grace is sufficient. And Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can have the assurance of knowing that no matter what happens in this world and even as we see the signs of the times unfolding all around us, that we can know that you are in control And that you're going to take this all where it needs to go. And we thank you, Lord, that that all ends in glory with you. For all who trust in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, Father, your beloved Son. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.